Well, welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Um, and today I'll be talking about The Temple. Um, the Temple was originally written in 1920, um, and it was published in Weird Tales in 1925, and then reprinted in Weird Tales in 1936. So this, uh, so this story sat on the shelf for a little while before um, Lovecraft published it, unlike a lot of his stories from this time. Uh, which found pretty quick publication after they were written. For instance, you know, uh, Arthur German, which you just looked at, you know, only took a, took a year to get uh, to be seen in print. So, okay, The Temple, what is this story about? Well, it's, it's another World War I story, so it often uh, gets compared to Dagon. Um, in fact, it's, you know, it's set at the sea and then, you know, from, the, from a U-boat, essentially, from... Um, you know, from the German military, there's a, a, a kind of an investigation into some weird phenomenons that that lead to a discovery of, of some kind of lost or ancient civilization. So in that sense, it's very, very similar. Uh, this story is a little bit more um, in depth. We get a lot more time with our protagonist. And another big difference is while in Dagon, it's a, it's a you know, an allied character who escapes from the Germans and then you know is lost in the Pacific until he finally finds this kind of raised um, ancient civilization uh, this cult of Dagon and then he sees the monster that's the story uh, here uh, is from the point of view of a German so it really allows Lovecraft to kind of dig into the cliches and the stereotypes of, of Germans as he builds his his character uh, Karl Heinrich is his name He's the commander of the U-boat, um, and he's the sole, well, he's the final survivor of this of this U-boat. Everyone else is killed in various ways um, over the course of the story, and then, but like that, he he's able to discover an ancient civilization. This one's not raised though; it's it's underwater, so um, he has to kind of do his investigation underwater, and 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 kind of essentially discover Atlantis is what he he discovers. So the story is is told as a as kind of a lost footage, uh, lost manuscript tale. Um, this manuscript was found off the coast, coast of Yucatan. This is the only way the story could work. It's essentially like a message in a bottle because, you know, our main character, our narrator, dies while, while in this, you know, while exploring this temple, this city underneath the seas. And so it's found sometime later. Actually, uh, quite far from, from where the events of the story take place, um, which are which is in the well, it's the South Pacific is is where this is set. It's a U-boat active in the South Pacific, um, and the the manuscript is eventually found in the coast of Yucatan in Mexico. So let's start out in talking about the this main character. First of all, he's a Prussian, so uh, you know we have like different cultures in Germany being kind of played with here. So there's big differences between like the the Rhinelanders, the character of the Rhinelanders, and the character of the Prussians, as revealed, the Prussians being more disciplined, more willful, more of the classic kind of German um, archetype. Other characters from other parts of Germany are treated as sort of lesser. He's got very much this kind of cultural and racial hierarchy here um, in this in the story, both between the Germans and, and everyone else. But primarily, you know, we, we spend most of the time with these different German characters. Um, and we got a lot of talk here about the German will. Our narrator constantly is, is speaking of 
his German will and and the, the failure of the will of other characters. He's often talking about uh, peasant ignorance, um, the lack of discipline among people being punishable by death. These uh, this is constantly repeated in the story. So he really hits it home. Um, almost ad nauseum. He, he, it's, it reminds me in this way of Beyond the Wall of Sleep where you know, Lovecraft just couldn't prevent himself, couldn't stop himself from insults towards the people of the Catskills, like the backcountry people. Here he does it with the, the Germans and their, their character. And again, it's, it's very, very cliched. It's the cliched German military uh, discipline, you know, a character with this German military discipline and this strong will. So, uh, you know, almost quasi kind of fascist uh, discussions about this but you know a clear distinction though between prussians and other people of the german empire so as this narration begins by the way the narration seems to be had written at several points throughout the story so the as the events are recorded they're closer to the the actual events that they took place in so it's more like a log that's revealed and so we along with the character learn more and more it's in the sense it's different than dagon dagon is all told after the fact this one is, is, is kind of unveiled as the story unfolds, which is, is useful. It, it's kind of like how the Call of Cthulhu has that same feel uh, of, of an un unveiling truth. But there it's done through nested documents, right? Documents within documents and, and different stories within stories, different uh, pieces, pieces of the puzzle. Um, here we got one continuous narrative, but it's, it's revealed bit by bit as the story unfolds. So uh, the narrator at the beginning of the story doesn't know where the story will end up. Well, this, the, the narration actually begins with a war crime. The U-boat um, torpedoed a British freighter, the Victory, and uh, then took pictures, uh, film of the, of the sinking of the ship. And then, and then actually they shoot all of the lifeboats of the survivors. So um, this kind of stuff happened um, quite a lot in World War II. It, you know, there's plenty of war crimes inflicted against civilians, particularly at the high seas in this way. Um, Germany had a policy of unrestricted submarine warfare during the war. It's of course one of the reasons that the United States eventually joined in on the war. So one of the victims, not really a survivor, but he lived long enough to kind of climb onto the U-boat um, and he died there. Um, he is, Italian or Greek, he's some, he's some, um, he's not, apparently not British, uh, but one of the British allies, perhaps. And yeah, actually, well, Gr Greece and Italy were both on the side of the allies in the war by the time of this story took place, 1917. So they find on this, this, this young man, this young sailor, a ivory statue which is carved to represent, quote, a, a youth's head crowned with a laurel. So it has sort of a Hellenic um, uh, imagery here. Um, and of course, the discovery of this temple, he essentially finds Atlantis. So Atlantis, of course, being a, a mythical Greek uh, civilization that's, that's, uh, was discovered underwater. And after this is discovered, they throw this dead man overboard, but they keep the, the relic and then various members of the crew of the U-boat start to act strangely. Um, quote, as the dead man was thrown overboard, there occurred two incidences which created much disturbance among the crew. The fellow's eyes had been closed, but in the dragging of his body to the rail, they were jarred open. 
and many seem to entertain a queer delusion that they, as, that they gaze steadily and mockingly at Schmidt and Zimmer, who were bent over the corpse. The bosun Mueller, an elderly man who had known better had he not been a superstitious Alstacian swine, became so excited by this impression that he watched the body in the water and swore that after it sank a little, it drew its limbs into the swimming position and sped away to the south under the waves. Clemson and I did not like these displays of peasant ignorance and severely reprimanded the men, particularly Mueller. And this, this, uh, this event leads to other strange behavior among the crew, particularly dreams. And our narrator kind of sets that aside and says, well, this is just the nervous behavior of, of these crewmen after this very, very long voyage. Um, so he decides to, you know, he kind of blames it the rough seas at the surface. So he says, let's go down under underwater. Let's, let's dive a little bit and, you know, not be affected as much by the waves and maybe this will help. But, um, you know, you still have this kind of, the, what, he, what he calls here, sick men, men who are kind of going sick in the mind through these various dreams. But they have a mission in front of them that our narrator wants to insist on completing, and that is intercepting another uh, British boat. This time it's the liner Dacia, and they got some spy information that this was leaving New York, so they were going after it. They go back to the surface, see a battleship, but they're at safe distance. There's no real threat there. The real threat seems to be internal. Um, whatever this statue unleashed among the men is getting worse, particularly the behavior of the bosun Mueller, uh, which becomes uh, a little bit more crazy. Um, quote, he was in a detestably childish state and babbled of some illusion of dead bodies drifting past the undersea portals, bodies which looked to him intensely and which he recognized in spite of the bloating as having seen dying during some of our victorious German exploits. And he said that the young man we have found in Tross Overboard was their leader, end quote. So we have, a, you know, this kind of theme in this book or the story that it's not really ever confirmed in the tale itself that somehow the, these men who die uh, become part of this, this underwater civilization, right? They become these, these essentially mermen who, who, who dwell under the sea. It's kind of like deep ones almost, but maybe this is kind of a proto deep one story. Now, those are, those are never really confirmed. By the end of the story, it's, it's pretty clear that there's something going on. There's something alive in this underwater city, but whether it's really the dead of the, of, you know, the dead of these German victories, or whether it's simply the delusions of these of these soldiers, it's not really clear. But you know, there seems to be some kind of living, swimming beings on, under underwater that are having this effect on the crew. Um, Eventually, a couple seamen, Bone and Schmidt, become insane, and, and eventually they have to be executed. So we see the brutality and the, the insistence on will and discipline among our captain, our narrator, um, Heinrich, where he actually executes these two, quote, for um, their, their lack of discipline. Um, he writes, I regretted that no physician was included in our complement of officers, since German lives are precious, but the constant ravings of these two concerning a terrible curse was the most pervasive of discipline, so drastic test steps were taken. Essentially, he, he just kind of hints that he executes them, but it's pretty clear that's what happened. Now, we don't get any real confirmation of these swimming kind of mer people, these, these swimming people led by this, uh, this one man they, they, that had the statue. But we do see confirmation of dolphins swimming around, schools of dolphins gathering around the U-boat in many numbers uh, along their along the southward currents that they were um, 
traveling on. Yeah, but from this point on, the, the, the crew basically, or the, 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 the U-boat breaks down from internal discipline. This madness that's running into the crew takes over much of the crew. The first thing they have is, a, is an explosion caused by sabotage, um, killing a couple engineers and, and basically permanently damaging the ship. They're able to, to survive long enough. I mean, they're able to keep it together so it could still function. But, um, you know, they're basically in... They're basically unable to guide the ship, and surrender is not an option. In fact, when some of the when one of the men suggests surrendering to the Americans, he has to be killed as well. Quote: Clients had to shoot a seaman named Traub, who urged this un-German act with a special violence. This quieted the crew for a time, and we submerged on scene. Um, we still have a lot of this 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 wildlife, though. The dolphins are a constant presence from this point on till till the end of the story. So uh, let me say, say this, the, the dates sort of matter here. So the, the story essentially begins on June 18th. That's when they sink the, the victory. The final date on the manuscript is August 20th. That's when he deposited the, the, the ship in the bottle or the message in the bottle, sorry. Um, so at this point in the story though, we're on June 20th. The insanity begins around June 20th and the general mutiny is on June, July 4th. So that's like three weeks or so after the opening events of the story. Um, and that pretty much leads to the end of the, of, of the entire crew. And we're left just with uh, the captain and, and cleanse these two characters that are going to carry on the rest of the story. Um, you know, the only ones that survived here, the six remaining pigs of seamen suspecting that we were lost had suddenly burst into a mad fury at a refusal to surrender to the Yankee battleship two days before and were in a delirium of cursing and destruction. They roared like animals as, the, as they were. They roared like the animals they were and broke instruments and furniture indiscriminately, screaming about such nonsense as the curse of the iron image and the dark dead youth who looked at them and swam away. Lieutenant Kleint seemed paralyzed and ineffective as one might expect of a soft, womanlish Rhinelander. I shot all six men for it was necessary and made sure that none remained alive." End quote. So th this basically uh, reduces the crew just to those two people. Now, again, we got this very uh, kind of this hierarchy of, of societies in Germany, according to the captain's point of view, Prussia being on the top and these others, although German, are all defective in some way based on like their place of birth based on their culture, whether they're peasants, whether they are, um, you know, like the womanish, womanish Rhinelander is how, how Kleins is, is described. Uh, the pigs of the seamen being these other, um, other sailors. So that, it's just a common theme and, and, and Lovecraft never tires of reminding us that this captain feels superior of, of everyone else. So now they have to rely on their wits. These two survivors have to rely on their wits to survive and rely on what technology is still functioning. And this is actually a really fascinating passage where Lovecraft reveals his knowledge of science and knowledge of navigation and the technologies in, in submarines, even some of his, even some science on the dolphins that were following them. Um, you know, like, like one thing he notices, for instance, about the dolphins, is that these dolphins have been following them f pretty much nonstop for quite a while, and that doesn't make sense because dolphins are mammals and require require air to breathe. Um, and this is kind of deepened in the fact that he sets himself up, for, or our narrator sets himself as different than Klentz, in that he has scientific knowledge because of 
of he's a Prussian, and Klein says not. Quote, I could not help observing, however, that the inferior scientific knowledge of my companion, his mind was not Prussian, but given to imaginings and speculations which have no value. The fact of our coming death affected him curiously, and he would frequently pray in remorse over the men, women, children who were sent to the bottom. And I think here Lovecraft a bit reveals why he wants to, you know, invest so much hev so heavily into this character's attitude about himself and his objectivity and his scientific background and his will is because we're going to have a character here who attempts to understand something scientifically through the normal process of inquiry and investigation even though he's even though he knows he's going to die he pursues this investigation as it as it unfolds but of course then he's going to be confronted with the reality that his worldview his scientific worldview has its has its limitations which, of course, is a big theme of Lovecraft's entire story. Now, what makes this story a little bit different some, than some of his others is that it's not a story of, of forgetting so much. It's a story of discovery. And that's always like a side of his tales, right? He always has the investigator, the one who digs deeper. And then he's got these other heroic figures who try to hide this knowledge. In fact, we just looked at a story that focused on that in Arthur German. That story is about exploration and revealing truths and revealing the unknown, in that case, the interior of Africa and uh, family history and family legacy. But then we have the heroic act being this uh, effort to try to abolish or forget the past. In Arthur German, it's through suicide and murder that that is achieved. This story doesn't have the one who tries to forget. And that maybe it's because our narrator here is so scientific that he can't help but to document what he sees, putting in a bottle, and, and, and see if anyone will reveal it, right? You know, the, the more common Lovecraftian response, I think, to the events in the temple would be to bury the knowledge with, uh, you know, with, uh, with the U-boat, right? That could have been another, another way he could have crafted the story, right? Like maybe someone pulls up uh, sunk, the sunken U-boat and finds evidence of this expedition he went on or something. Right. I don't think they had that technology for that kind of deep sea kind of ship raising uh, in those days. Um, I'm not even sure where it is now, but I know do, people do investigate these shipwrecks now. So um, I don't know if it would have been possible in 1920 to imagine such a thing. So instead we get this bottle um, story. So anyways, uh, eventually it says August 9th. So that's a, it's a whole month basically since the mutiny. So it's just these two guys alone for almost a whole month. So on August 9th, and of course the story ends on August 20th, um, they get to the ocean floor and we get the first evidence of kind of man-made relics. So in this sense, it's like Dagon, right? The, the creepiest thing about the story of Dagon is the revelation that this, this island in the middle of the Pacific that seems to have been raised by some type of earthquake has, you know, artificial constructs on it, right? Like the monolith. Here... It's just very subtle at first. Um, quote, it was a vast undulating plain, mostly covered with seaweed and strewn with the shells of small mollusks. Here and there were slimy objects of puzzling contour, draped with weeds and encrusted with barnacles, which Kleins declared must be ancient ships lying in their graves. He was puzzled by one thing, a peak of solid matter protruding above the ocean bed, nearly four feet at its apex, nearly two feet thick with flat sides and smooth upper surfaces, which met at a very obtuse angle. Um, Heinrich, our narrator, says this is just a, a, a strangely formed rock. Don't think too much of it, but we're meant to believe that it, it's, it's artificial. And once again, we get the scientific uh, 
like this draw of scientific investigation and it being associated with the German mind, or especially the Prussian mind. Quote, his mind was tired, Kleinz's mind, his mind was tired, but I am always a German and was first, was quick to notice two things, that the U-29 was standing the deep sea pressure splendidly and that the peculiar dolphins were still about us, even at a depth where the existence of high or organisms was considered impossible by most naturalists. That I had previously overestimated our depth, I was sure, but nonetheless, we must still be deep enough to make this phenomenon remarkable, end quote. So he's still trying to justify what he sees, both the fact that dolphins can seem to survive under underwater for such long periods of time at such depths. Um, you know, maybe they're not as deep as, you know, because they're machines were busted in the mutiny and the explosion but you know there's still it's just still a strange phenomenon here that's that he's documenting here like a scientist which I, which I think is a really kind of cool kind of interesting part of the story so with this uh on august 12th uh Kleins begins to go mad and his madness takes the form of of repeating this phrase he is calling we must go to him Right, whatever that is, right? So it seems to be we have to go outside. We have to go out of the out of the U-boat to join this um, he, whatever it is. Um, of course, our narrator sees this just as a madness. Um, and again, we're reminded, you know, he's not fully really German enough. Quote: He was a German, but only a Rhinelander and a commoner, and now he was a potentially dangerous madman. By complying with his suicidal request, I could immediately free myself from one who's no longer a companion but a menace. I asked him to give me the ivory image before he went, but this request brought him such uncanny laughter that I did not repeat it. Um, so he leaves with the ivory image um, out, to the, out of the U-boat. But I, I find it interesting that there's still kind of this scientific inquiry in Heinrich's mind here. As, as he watches him leave, he thinks, well, why doesn't the water pressure crush his body or flatten him? Um, you know, and wants to compare the, how the water pressure affects Kleins, his, his comrade for the la sole comrade for the last month, compared to how it affects the, the dolphins. Um, for the same reason, he seems to regret not having taken the ivory um, statue um, for a couple of reasons. One, it seems that it's calling to him and that he's being drawn by the same force slowly, so he's beginning to lose his sanity in the same way. But I think deep, there's another part of him that just wants to have a record of, of these, these events. But anyways, uh, the next day, he, he finally sees more evidence of the of that this is actually an underwater city that he's in, not just uh, some strange rock formations that seem crudely artificial, but just are just uh, lucky formations of rock. Instead, he, you know, it's hard to deny that these are actual cities, actually man-made. Quote. Uh, and yet, as one reared in the best culture of Prussia, I should not have been amazed for geology and tradition alike tell us of the great transpositions of oceanic and continental areas. What I saw was an extended and elaborate array of ruined edifices, all of magnificent, though unclassified architecture, and in various stages of preservation. Most appeared to be a marble gleaming whitely in the rays of the searchlight, and the general plan was of a large city at the bottom of a narrow valley with numerous isolated temples and villas on the steep slopes above. Okay, so you might be asking, like I did, didn't continental drift, which is directly alluded to here, not, I mean, that's the explanation, the scientific explanation for why there could be an ancient city underwater is continental drift. Of course, continental drift 
takes place at a much slower scale than human civilizations. So, uh, of course, that's a Lovecraftian motif that civilizations go are much deeper and societies run much deeper in human history or Earth history, maybe even pre-human uh, history. Um, but still, uh, you know, I thought continental drift was not really confirmed or really theorized seriously until the middle of the century. But I'm wrong here. If you go to the Wikipedia on continental drift, we find this uh, written. First of all, people were theorizing it in the 19th century. Um, maybe not taken seriously, but here we go. Uh, this is right from the article. Quote, apart from the earlier speculations mentioned in the previous section, the idea that the American continents had once formed a single landmass together with Europe and Asia before assuming their present shapes and positions was postulated by several scientists before Alfred Wegener's 1912 paper. Although Wegener's theory was formed independently, it was more complete than those of his predecessors. Wegener later credited a number of past authors with similar ideas. Franklin Coxworthy, Robert Montavani, William Henry Pickering, Frank Bursley Taylor, in addition, Edward Seuss had proposed a supercontinent Gotawana in 1885 and the Tethys Ocean in 1893, assuming a land bridge between the present continents submerged in the form of a geocycline. And John Perry had written in an 1895 paper proposing that the Earth's interior was fluid. All right, so a couple of these guys um, were German. Um, Edward Seuss was Austrian. Um, Alfred Wegener was, was German. So these were ideas that were in the German kind of scientific culture. And our, our narrator here being scientifically minded and having this curiosity about science, it's not surprising he would have been aware of them. But it wasn't maybe not confirmed until the later, to like the 1950s or so. It was certainly being theorized um, before. So once uh, he realizes that he's with him, he's found Atlantis, he wants to become the explorer, even though he knows he's probably never going to be able to report his findings. He's probably going to die down here in the U-boat. Um, but he begins to explore. So he puts on like the diving suits, goes out there, and the, the final pages of the story, the final five, six pages of the story, are his, his descriptions of this underground city, particularly one temple, and, and his investigations of it. So here's the description of the temple. Um, I was confronted by the richly ornate and perfectly preserved facade of a great building, evidently a temple hollowed from the solid rock. Of the original workmanship of this titanic thing, I can only make conjectures. The facade of immense magnitude apparently covers a continuous hollow recess for its windows are many and widely distributed. In the center yawns a great open door reached by an impressive flight of steps and surrounded by exquisite carvings like the figures of bacchanals in relief. Foremost of all are the great columns and frieze, both decorated with sculptures of, sculptures of inexpressible beauty, obviously portraying idealized pastoral scenes of processions of priests and priestesses bearing strange ceremonial devices in adoration of a radiant god. The art is of the most phenomenal perfection, largely Hellenic in idea, yet strangely individual. Now the theory he gives here is that this isn't a Greek civilization that's somewhat descended, but that these art forms are precursors to the Greek civilization, right? But they're not, they're pretty preserved. That's the other kind of striking thing about this description uh, is that the, this temple's in good shape. It's, it's not overrun with seaweed. These statues are in good shape as if it's being maintained or cultivated or even more recently built. Now, as his investigation 
continues, he begins to experience the, the kind of the breaking of his German will. Um, and this is evidenced in the fact that he's beginning to have hallucinations, both auditory and visual, uh, like auditory in hearing this calling, the same kind of thing that afflicted the earlier sailors earlier. So I think the suggestion is that those more weak-minded cultures, non-Prussian, not fully Germanic yet, uh, maybe corrupted in some way, they descend more quickly to the irrational and to the, to, you know, and they, they, they succumb to these calls earlier. He holds out the longest. I think that's the reason there's this insistent on this German um, will. For instance, my rage was unbound, yet my German sense forbade me to venture unprepared into the utter black interior, which might prove the lair of some undescribable marine monster or a labyrinth of passages from whose windings I could never extricate myself. But then a few lines later, he says, For the first moment in my life, I experienced the emotion of dread. I began to realize how some of poor Kleinz's moods had arisen. For as the temple drew me more and more, I feared its aqueous abyss with a blind and mounting terror. Um, uh, so, so that's like the auditory phenomenon. But he also has a visual hallucination, which is lights in the temple. Right? So that's the big scare in this story in a sense, is that the temple seems to be active and being used and that there is people using it as evidenced by artificial light coming forth from the temple. Well, the last pages of the story then are this back and forth between his reason and his, his, this emerging irrationality uh, in his dreams and his hallucinations and this pull to explore and this, this other more reasonable motivation to try to survive to make sure the electricity and the power on the U-boat lasts as long as possible. So that has this really cool effect of he can't really keep the lights on in the U-boat, so he's sitting there in darkness all the time. Really kind of creepy stuff. Um, but he's always being pulled back and forth between irrationality and, and reason, or reason in the dreams. Um, quote, I was a little dazed by this coincidence, but I cannot become terrified. It is the only inferior thinker who hastens to explain the singular and the complex by a primitive shortcut of supernaturalism the coincidence was strange but i was too sound to reasoner too sound a reasoner to connect circumstances which admit of no logical connection or to associate in any uncanny fashion the disastrous events which had led from the victory affair to my present flight my nervous condition was reflected in my dreams for it seems to hear the cry of drowning persons and to see the dead faces pressing against the portholes of the boat and among the dead faces with the living mocking face of the youth with the ivory image Quote. So I, I think Lovecraft wants us to, to, to see that these are like living beings, right? That maybe they're taken as dolphins or there's, you know, somehow these dolphins are maybe dolphin versions of these, of these eternal humans, right? That's you know, those who die at sea end up becoming part of this underground civilization. Dolphins who die, maybe they become part of it too. That's why they get to the underwater. I don't know. Love, Lovecraft doesn't really want to explain it. He, does, he never does, right, in this part of his career. He keeps it very, very mysterious. Um, but anyways, the thing that finally pulls our narrator over the edge is the light in the temple, which he simply can't resist. So he finishes his narration and, and, and swims off into the temple, never to be seen from again, although his story does survive. In, in the bottle. So that's the story, the temple. Um, I rather like this one, despite its heavy-handed use of kind of this, 
idea of a German reasonable, you know, the German will and German reason. Our narrator is kind of odious in the way he treats his crew, you know, executes them summarily, doesn't have any real sympathy for their, their plight, uh, you know, refusal to surrender and all that. So he's not the most appealing narrator, but I think Lovecraft does this all to really pose this struggle, this conflict between the supernatural being revealed to one over time and, and the breakdown of, of, of reason and the inability of, of, of reason and science to explain what he's seen. Um, obviously here we also have the pull of the sea, uh, a theme we see in, in like, uh, the white ship, uh, the festival, um, what else uh, am I thinking of? Uh, Dagon has this a little bit, but not, not nearly as strongly there. He's almost trying to flee the sea, even though he stays in, I think, San Francisco to write his, his, his narrative. He, he seems to want to get away from it. But, uh, oh, uh, uh, the Shadow of Over Innsmouth has that same thing with this pull to, of the Deep Ones, right? That this, our, our, the future will be one with Deep Ones living eternally under the sea if we're just a part of this civilization. So you got that. Um, it's a pretty good World War II story, World War II supernatural story. Of course, many U-boats are lost in the Atlantic. Uh, many ships were lost in the Atlantic, so death at sea was a major fear in World War One. It was a, you know, it was, it was a way, you know, thousands of people died during the war, and dying in a sinking U-boat must be one of the more horrifying ones. And I think Lovecraft does a really good job of, of expressing the, the growing madness, which, from our narrator's point of view, and from I think a fairly reasonable perspective, is you know explicable by just the breakdown of one's rationality when they, you know. To be in a sinking U-boat, right? That's probably you're probably not going to survive. So what do you do, right? Those six mutineers at the end, you know, they're pretty much have no hope but to surrender to the Americans. So that's a totally realistic kind of terror. But Lovecraft adds to it this, the fact that they're being drawn in and pulled by this ivory statuette, by this temple, by this civilization to be one with the with the sea. Um, of course, the bodies are expelled into the ocean where they seem to be reborn as these, these undead almost or to get a second lease on life as, as citizens of Atlantis. So, yeah, it's not very coherent. It doesn't all come together like the dolphins. None of this stuff is explained, but I think that's how Lovecraft was writing at the time. It's going to be later on where he tries to piece everything together, right? And sometimes that is done in awkward ways, like at the... Mountains of Madness, right? The only way he can piece together the story so the reader knows what's going on exactly with the elder things and the Shoggoths is by having those drawings, right? Those wall drawings, which our investigators can instantly read without any trouble. No problem interpretation. They're able to tell this very, very detailed story about the millions of years past civilization of the elder things, you know, just by looking at pictures on the wall, right? Uh, that is pretty hacky too in the way it's done there. Other stories he does a little bit better job. I think Call of Cthulhu is a great example of how he's able to use these nested stories to to prevent a, to present a full, full a full picture. But I think we all agree that that's like a major turning point in Lovecraft's career. At this point, he's still going more for the effect and the and just to to have the supernatural there, but without it necessarily being explained fully. And that's that's certainly the true in this this story. But I. I still like it. I, I think it's it's kind of wild. It's not one of my favorite, but I think it it it, it holds up fairly well. 
Um, I love the setting. The setting of the sinking U-boat is great. Um, the, the tensions between the captain and the crew, I think, are just a very interesting window into maybe power relations. Uh, you got a little bit of the racial language here, but mostly seen differences within these German societies. But I think the biggest theme of the story is the conflict between reason and and science or science, reason on the one hand and the irrationality of reality on the other hand, right? The limits of science, right? Because in just the previous tale in uh, Arthur German, we're told right away like science is beginning to reveal truths that are will drive us mad, right? And in this story, we have almost like the inverse of that being science as the as the way we protect ourselves from the irrational i think it's really and i think that way these stories sort of pair together they're kind of two sides of the same coin of of science and reason or science and irrationality either science is the window into the irrationality of the universe or it's and it's danger and it's horror or it becomes we or we become like the the scully right Agent Scully just using science to try to funnel everything that's experienced, you know, into a narrow funnel, right? And that's what our narrator tries to do, but eventually he can't hold and, and he has no choice but to join um, his fellow crewmates, join his victims in, you know, in a, essentially Atlantis. Now, I don't know if it's Atlantis or if that's Lovecraft's intention. I think there's only one mention of Atlantis. It's that our narrator thinks it's Atlantis, but it basically is Atlantis here. Um, um, but yeah, overall interesting story, one worth checking out. So um, next up, the next story I'll be looking at will be. Um, let me see if I can pronounce it right. Um, Cellaface. Cellaface is next. That's a Dreamland story, uh, a true Dreamland story because it has a dreamer. Um, set in this this. Uh, Dreamland's world that Lovecraft goes to so many times. So it's a fun one. Um, so that will be what I'll talk about in the very, very, uh, the next episode. So uh, give me your thoughts about the temple. Um, share this if you feel moved to. Uh, I will be back next time with my thoughts on Cellaface. Um, thanks for listening.